Greetings, and welcome to Mind Matters News. Eric Larson, a computer scientist and founder of two DARPA-funded artificial intelligence startups, has been investigating and testing the boundaries of AI. In his new book, published by Harvard University Press and titled The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, Why Computers Can't Think the Way We Do, Larson argues that hyping AI to the point of equating it with human intelligence is extremely detrimental to long-term innovation. Why? Well, our guest host, Andrew McDermott, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and host of his own podcast, Simply Scottish, chats with Larson about this and other issues today on Mind Matters News. All right. So I'm here with uh, Eric Larson. He is uh, not only a wonderful man and great thinker, but he's now the author of The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, Why Computers Can't Think the Way We Do. Uh, And uh, what's your publisher? Is it Harvard? Yeah, Harvard University Okay. All right. So this book just came out, and uh, it's making a bit of a splash. Hopefully, we can uh, make the splash bigger. But... Basically, Eric, I just wanted to chat with you, ask you some questions about it. I'll start with some honesty. I haven't read the whole thing yet, just because I've been crazy busy with uh, with our friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer and his sure. new book, but, uh, but I'm fully uh, planning on reading it. I have some vacation time coming up, so um, I'm really looking forward to it because I, I think you've hit on something that is very valuable for us to look at right now, and that is what path are we on with AI are we on the right path? Is it going to lead us to the things they're promising? Or should we go back to the drawing board? So let me just uh, ask you a few questions. And that, in fact, is my first question to you. You're calling for us with this book to go back to the drawing board with AI research and development. Can you paint a picture first for us of what the AI landscape looks like today and why it's not heading in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, basically starting around the year 2000, AI went from um, the old uh, way of doing things to a kind of data-driven way. Basically, we're dealing now with what I call big data AI, which is basically AI works the best when you have massive data sets. And um, that has made certain things like image recognition face recognition on Facebook, for instance, uh, personalizing news feeds and things like this has made those things, put those on steroids, but it's also resulted in, um, you know, AI being done a certain way, which in the book I describe as induction, basically. Um, So uh, the old way of doing AI, we we would write rules. I was, I actually came out of this camp and then ended up working in the you know, the modern AI, but I started in the field around the year, actually exactly the year 2000. And at that time it was just taking off. Google was pretty much unknown except for little pockets in, in, in California. And um, there was no Facebook, there was no web 2.0 in, in the year 2000. And AI was kind of in one of these winter periods where um, the work was, where people had lost a little bit of confidence, funding dried up and so on. So at that time, 20 years ago, when I started, um, the, the field was still trying to basically write rules or use what I call in the book a deductive approach, right? So 
Deduction in philosophy is well understood. It's the classic example is you know, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. So Socrates is mortal, right? So it's a, it's a way of specifying premises and then reaching a conclusion. And the, those inferences are rule-based because you actually write or specify the, the knowledge and then you reach the, the conclusion that way. And so there was still, like the first company I worked at, um, it was we were still using that method. In fact, it's a famous AI company in, in Austin, Texas, not far from where I am here. And But the web had taken off a few years earlier. I mean, I think the first commercial company in the web was 1994, but the traffic really started to, to accelerate in terms of the growth of web pages on the World Wide Web in the... Um, you know, the, the, the latter part, just, you know, 1995 to 2000, basically in that part of the decade, the web had this exponential page growth. And so all of a sudden there was all this data. And so the, the old methods, actually a lot of the, the AI that we use today, modern AI or what I, like I keep, you know, I call it big data AI. A lot of those methods, machine learning methods, deep learning is one of the, is one of the current methods that's really popular. Those methods actually have been around for a long time. Deep learning is based on something called a neural network. And a neural network actually is one of the older machine learning algorithms in AI. I think it was the original neural networks were called perceptrons, and they actually emerged in the 1950s, pretty much at the inception of the, of the field itself. So the tech wasn't the, the, the actual algorithms, the learning algorithms weren't new going into the, this next decade in the 2000s, but the amount of data available to feed them it was just exponentially growing because web pages are basically text and images, right? Yeah. So if you see, so you see, when you think about AI today, you think about the big companies like Facebook uses AI. They hire you know, some of the best AI people in the world to, to run their labs. Google uses AI. Everybody's using this buzzword AI. What they're using are these machine learning algorithms that are actually very old and they've gotten certain modifications like deep learning, for instance, is a, is a, is a basically a stacked neural network. So you take more than one neural network and you stack them on top of each other to create a deep uh, hidden structure in that, in the, for the learning algorithm. But so, yeah, so we had, so we ended up with basically these old, what we used to call empirical techniques or learning techniques with 10 X, a hundred X, a thousand X, a million X amounts of data. And all of a sudden they were doing things that they wouldn't do before. And so there was a period where the AI community kind of slowly and then really all at once dropped the rule-based approaches and adopted the empirical methods or the machine learning approaches. Yeah. So the, 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 the strength is, is that you can do a lot with data. The weakness is, is that you need a lot of data to do anything basically. Right. Yeah. The switch from deductive to inductive was basically to, to deal with the amounts of data that we were acquiring. Basically, yes. Empirical approaches or the inductive approaches just started to show immense promise because there were huge data sets to feed them, right? Okay. So, so it was the next Yeah, progression. so I mean, I'll just give you an example. Say on Facebook, if you want to personalize your newsfeed, that means that basically it's going to be looking at what you're looking at, what news you're clicking on. 
And so by prior example, by looking at lots of prior examples, it comes up with what's called a model, a predictive model of what you're likely to want in the future, right? So what's what's running that? So that's the AI system that's actually personalizing your news. And what it's doing is inductively, it's looking at what you will prefer, what your preference will be in the future. That's what that's what's happening, and that's basically how all of the AI today works in the web. Like we, you know, you could go to other examples, but that's going to be the basic the basic model for how AI works today. Yeah. To answer your question, they switched to, so the, the AI community, we scientists, all of us, I did switch to this as well. My field is in natural language processing, information extraction. So I deal with text, how to extract information from text, how to classify text. Everyone sort of, you know, went from this old way of doing AI to this data hungry way of doing AI because those methods worked better, basically, right? It was all, it was it was to deal with the amount of text on the web to make sense of it, but it was also just because, as an AI scientist, all of a sudden those were the methods that you had that really were showing the best results in terms of accuracy and so on. That happened. I mean, in the last twenty in the last twenty years, that's completely dominated AI. Yeah. Okay, so we have this landscape uh, with largely inductive uh, reasoning and inference. Uh, we have tons of data, but we're nowhere close to the general intelligence that we're being promised by futurists. So we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that as we go. Um, another basic question, how did you get interested in AI? Did you always look like you were going to, to uh, study that in school and have that as a job? Yeah, I mean, I started out studying philosophy and math actually those were my two majors as an undergraduate and I actually didn't take like really take very much computer science as an undergraduate I think I took a couple of courses in what are now almost defunct languages like Pascal or something which kind of ages me I guess (laughs) that's like Pascal is such an old old language but uh, I took I took a couple courses as part of my math major but, you know, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't study AI or, I mean, computer science per se. And even in graduate school, I started in a PhD program in philosophy. And then, you know, for, I, like, I found myself getting interested in the core sort of philosophy of AI issues. Like, can a machine actually show, simulate or reproduce actual human intelligence? How, what are the limits of machines? And there's, there's all kinds of interesting explorations and inroads into those questions in math and in computer science and in philosophy. So I started like really focusing on the philosophy of AI as a PhD student in philosophy. And then at some point, I mean, frankly, like the, the true answer is, is that like my wife got pregnant with Brooke, my first, our first child, who's now 21. And I was in a philosophy program uh, making, you know, pennies teaching as a teaching assistant. And so I basically taught myself how to, how to program and ended up getting a job, which was a huge break for me in a, what's really a famous, it's, it's a, it's an old fashioned AI company, but it's actually still around. It's called Psycorp if, if, um, if anybody knows it, but I ended up getting a job at Psycorp and actually, you know, transitioning from an academic into an actual, uh, professional computer scientists and so on. So, yeah. Although there are aspects of computer science where you're just basically you're an engineer, right? Like it's like sort of like building a bridge. It's not so much theory as it is like 
you're actually just building systems, right? So right, yeah, yeah. that was I got interested in it through philosophy is the short answer. So if you hadn't taken the philosophy classes, you might be a millionaire now because you'd have the math, you'd get into the tech and you'd make millions. But you took the philosophy. You decided to think about it as well. Well, in yeah. one of your podcasts, I looked but up I your- I start two companies and sell them. Oh, so, well, there yeah. you go. There you go. That's yeah. right. You are a tech entrepreneur yeah. as well. And that is cool. That's what's cool. One of the cool things about your voice is- is you're not just hey we should watch out for this stuff you know you you're you're working in it you're you're innovating in it you're not afraid of of what's to come but you want to caution people and you want to make sure we're on the right path and doing it the right way i i found some of your podcasts um on the web and in one of them you say i don't know what a mind is but i know what a machine is so how does that assertion illuminate where we are on the ai debate I get this question a lot and it's, it's an understandable question. Um, but people sort of ask, so what, if, you know, what's your view about minds and machines and those kind of philosophy questions, I deliberately, I deliberately avoided asking those in the book because as a computer scientist, I wanted to write an argument for computer scientists that was also understandable by the broader public. Um, you know, like when I say, I don't know what a mind is, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that I have, I have, you know, I can separate that part of my thinking from the problems that we're having in AI and the progress that we're making or not making. So I think the core issue in AI is that something that minds do that we know that they do, which is basically hypothesis generation. There's a type of logic called abduction. Um, that type of thinking that we do, this abductive inference, which I can explain if you want later, but um, remember how I was saying that big data AI is inductive, inductive inference. Inference is just from, I, from what I know and what I see around me, what can I conclude? Inference. And it has a kind of formal understanding in computer science. But there's this type of inference that minds do, that people do, that we can't figure out how to program. So the book was really an exposition of here are the here are the three known types of inference: deduction, induction, and abduction. Here are here is basically the entire field of AI since its inception in 1956, divided between deductive attempts, old-fashioned AI, good old-fashioned AI. Um, it's been referred to, and inductive attempts, which have basically dominated the last 20 years, as I was saying. And there's been basically essentially no progress other than some token progress using some base nets and so on, but really no progress on abduction and abduction is common sense thinking. It's what we do when we have a conversation like we're having now. It's, it's what we do when we navigate in dynamic environments, like we go buy a gallon of milk at the store. That's just completely absent from the work that we do as computer scientists. In fact, it's not even that it's absent and we haven't gotten to it yet. It's that, and I, I can tell you this as someone who builds and designs these systems, nobody even knows, like nobody has a clue how to do that, like to, to do abduction. So there is this very interesting distinction that we can see when you look through the lens of inference that people are doing things cognitively that machines just aren't capable of doing. So that, that I don't know, like, you know, and I don't, I don't tend to, I'm not the guy who's going to start saying, so we're dualists. So we're this. And so we're that, right? Like I got off the boat with that kind of 
you know, those kind of certainly publicly, I don't talk about that stuff in terms of what I'm doing with my book, but I, but just even in my personal life, like I'm just, you know, I'm just, I don't have extremely strong views about what's going on with the mind, whether it's a Cartesian model or it's some kind of other model or something. What I do know is, is that our attempts to make the mind, you know, to, to basically program the mind in computers have failed. And there's a very strong principled reason that they failed. It does seem like we're dealing with two different things. Right. Keeping mind and machine separate in our minds is, is I think, one of the first steps to really having the respect to even get to the right questions uh, in this debate. So part one of your book is called The Simplified World, where you explain how AI culture has simplified things about humans and also maybe overextended uh, ideas about technology. And you say it started with Alan Turing and just some of the extension he did uh, on the subject. Has it really come uh, so far up to today? Are we still doing what he did, like assuming more than we should? So his idea was that the intelligence reduces to problem solving basically. And he, so, you know, in the book, I talk about how he seems to have undergone a fairly fundamental change in his, um, in his earlier work, he talked about the distinction in mathematics between ingenuity and, and uh, insight. And insight was something he said that mathematicians use that's outside of the formal system that they're working with to decide on what parts of the system are interesting to think about. So, when some mathematician comes up with a new proof or comes up with some interesting development of some aspect of mathematics, Turing originally was saying that that's, that's a, a, a non-mechanical feature of the mathematician, right? So part of their job involved this insight, which was separate from ingenuity. And ingenuity was the actual working out, the sort of nuts and bolts working out of of, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever the proof is or whatever you're trying to do in math. So, and then later he basically seemed to just ignore or like he, he effectively just jettisoned that, that idea or that distinction from his discussion. So this is, you know, circa 1936, you have Turing talking about these curious aspects of seemingly non-mechanical and mechanical aspects of of doing mathematics, which of course is just a kind of thinking, right? And then by 1950, when he wrote this seminal paper, you know, which gave rise to the Turing test and this the conversation test that everybody knows about, um, he just had completely abandoned this idea, and he'd clearly come to the idea that, you know, to the view that we could just program that that intelligence is just problem solving. So if we just solve the problem of human intelligence if we just write it down in computer programs, right, then there wouldn't be any difference between the mind and the, and the machine, right? So he had this change of heart clearly in, in his work. And we, and I definitely think that, that he's kind of the pioneer and the major figure that all of us in AI look back to. He formulated the actual mathematics of what a, a, a computer program is. It's a Turing machine, which is a kind of abstraction, right? And so, um, and all of computer science rests effectively on this formalism called after him, uh, the Turing machine, obviously. 
so he really is the, the he's the key kind of you know linchpin for the development maybe von neumann the other guy we but um and so we you know we looked at him as kind of like the father of ai really and his idea i think was fundamentally flawed that's not to take away from his brilliance as a mathematician he was a mathematical logician also which is one of my fields that i studied and he you know he's really he, he really deserves to be in the annals of history as this brilliant guy but in terms of his view of human intelligence i think he had a he had a kind of reductionistic view of human intelligence and that was inherited by the field through the decades on up to the current view. And I think that's unfortunate. That's what I mean by the simplified world, a simplified reductionistic view of human, of the human mind, right? Of human thinking. And I think that's unfortunate, actually. That's, that's, has all kinds of downstream problems. Yeah. Yeah. So you're for the first part of your book, you're, you're discussing that, that, that simplification of things that we really need to be looking closer at. Uh, and then you, then you get into the different types of reasoning and uh, you say that we're not really on the right path right now. Are we still focused on inductive and how do we get to abductive? Is it possible to get to that in AI? You, you obviously well, don't know the answer, but you yeah, can surmise. I, I, I know. So our, the problem with induction of course, is that you, you can't deal with exceptions. So the d- big data AI, this is just, I don't want to confuse the listener. Big data AI just is what we mean by AI today. It's the AI that all the tech that's running on your phone. It's what, you know, it's Alexa that interprets the, the signal from your voice into, into text sequences and Siri and so on. When you have voice act activated stuff on your phone, it's, you know, it's, it's movie recommendations on Netflix. It's, you know, automatic recognition of your, of your friends' faces on Facebook. Like all of that is under this, under this umbrella of big data AI. And the key point there is, is like I was saying, like the inductive inference. So this also is, this comes from philosophy induction. And the, the classic example is that, you know, all swans are white because in England, you know, if you go and you look at swans, it turns out that every swan you observe is white. And so from seeing a large enough sample, this also undergirds statistical theory, by the way, as well. So if you get a large enough sample size of swans with this property of whiteness, then you can generalize to this, you can make this inductive inference to this rule that all swans are white. So the rule is never completely uh, certain because you could observe it suffices to observe one black swan to invalidate the rule. And it turns out if you go to Australia, there is a black swan. And so it turns out that that inductive generalizations generalization is, is wrong. This is the same thing as saying that, you know, like in on Netflix. So I'm working on a, I'm building a recommendation system for movies right now at, at my company, my software company. And so this is the same thing as saying that like every time that, you know, Eric or Andrew, watches a movie it has you know has these features in it and it's over say this number in imdb and so on and so you just develop the same kind of inductive model as the the it's the same thinking ultimately as the sort of all swans or white problem so it says okay these are the movies that that andrew is going to like in the future and of course if anything about your past movie wasn't complete your movie preferences, any of any of your your past movie viewing behavior wasn't complete for purposes of this predictive model, then 
the inductive generaliz generalization is going to be wrong, right? So this is exactly the problem. It can't, as an as a as a all encompassing method to generate intelligence, it's not adequate. Very obviously not adequate. It just doesn't handle exceptions. So anything right. new, anything new comes along is going to be a major uh, major problem for an inductive system. And that would seem to be why uh, different. Uh, organizations that use this technology are constantly wanting feedback from you. They want that thumbs up or thumbs down. They want you to rate the last thing that you bought on Amazon or the last movie you watched because that will update their uh, ability to account for exceptions or or just uh, a larger data field. Yeah, because you know I've noticed yeah, that. I like mean, if I if I listen to a song. And I don't really like it, but I I'm I'm not afraid to try new things and, and new artists. But then they'll start recommending that artist, and the artists like that artist, and and then we're off on on things that don't really relate anymore. You know, our preferences in the future do likely have some connection to our preferences in the past, but it's very unuseful for things that require any kind of insight. You know, going back to Turing's original idea, so if there's some new movie that comes along that's not in the data set, then, you know, it just is going to ignore it. So induction is a blunt instrument that looks at the, the overall scope of uh, prior cases to determine future cases. And if you try to use that as the, as a, as a way to generate a, a true AI or like an, a, you know, a, a general intelligence, it's, it's just absolutely hopeless. Like even this conversation we're having now is just full of exceptions. Like, and full of requirements for you to make slight hypotheses and leaps and guesses about, you know, meaning and so on. Like, in other words, you can't have just ingested a million prior conversations to figure out what to say next. Right. That just won't work. You actually have to understand what's being said now. And induction just doesn't give us that kind of capability. And it's interesting because you see Netflix pouring money, lots of money into new content, and they actually are using big data to figure out what to make next. So again, that can be tricky yeah. too, because if, if people just watch it because it's there, like, are they watching it because it's there or are they, is it there because they want it? There's, there's that uh, give and take there that can cause a lot of issues. And I guess maybe the futurists will say, well, that'll even itself out over time, you know, as we get closer to stuff. But but it would well, seem like, like it would just put a dampener on humanity and our ability to not only think outside the box and to not only try new things, but to learn from our mistakes, to adjust, you know, it kind of gets in the way of that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it. so actually I was a couple of years ago or I think maybe... 2000, yeah, a couple of years ago now, Hollywood, some of the major studios in California um, bought, I don't remember the companies now, but they, some major platforms to predict, um, you know, blockbusters. And I, I think this kind of thinking is just like, there's this point that I don't make in the book, but I, I feel like it's a good point to make with you because I know I kind of, you know, from prior discussion with you, I know we share a lot of the same views about technology. And there's some curious fact about, there's this constant attempt in culture to replace actual strong contributions by actual people. 
like novel movies and new ideas and, you know, just all kinds of cultural contributions that happen in the free play of a free society with statistics from the past and, you know, putting the AI label on just endless statistical analysis of prior successes is kind of like trying to paint the future without anything interesting happening. Right. Like, so it's, it's, it is in this larger sort of jockey Lule sense, it is almost like this machine is sort of, you know, gradually taking over our, you know, our natural, you know, our inclination is to innovate and to do and to try new things. But, you know, too much of this AI technology just inserted and just deployed everywhere, you know, is really, really pulling against that happening. So one just obvious example is, is that the AI systems that the, these the studios are using are not going to recognize anything that wasn't a formula. So we just know we're getting formulaic movies if they're using these AI systems, right? Yeah. And you can draw a, di- a direct line through this, right? From the fact that the AI used today is inductive in its central commitment, right? For, and, and induction relies on prior examples, right? From that fact, you draw all of these negative consequences about, you know, like we're now using formulas. Like what worked in the past is going to be the most frequent blockbusters, right? The ones with, right, just on a bell curve, the ones that worked in the past. So all of the surprise hits are going to fall out of that. They won't be as likely. So it's effectively like repainting Hollywood as being more Hollywood, like more formula and less really interesting stuff. And same with publishers and in, 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 you know, fiction and so on. Yeah. It's I keep, troubling. I actually don't deal with this in this book, but I'm glad that you took the situate. I, I'm glad that you asked this question and we went in this direction because I don't deal with that in the book per se. I talk about how using computers to try to do core science is a, is a foolish game. And that's a related issue with the, the question of innovation. It is a good question to explore. But yeah, yes. just this whole uh, thing of innovation. And before we even started recording, I asked some questions. And here's a good question. Is there lessons about the ethics of innovation from the past that would be useful to us today? Can you think of any um, anything they learned about innovation in the past that we could really learn from as we're innovating today? Well, yeah, I mean, you could go all the way back to, um, you know, some of the core discoveries in science were definitely not big data driven discoveries. And so I actually, this is uh, one of my favorite examples is Copernicus, who, of course, gave us the heliocentric view of the solar system, right? Or at that time, they thought it was pretty much the cosmos, right? But the sun in the center, there was a you know, a theory before that, that it persisted for eight, 900 years called the Ptolemaic model, where the earth was at the center of the, of the cosmos. And, and Copernicus obviously flipped that. And the original model that he constructed, this sun-centered model was actually not as predictive. It solved if it could be completed a couple of difficult problems in astronomy and, but, but they had been accumulating, the point is, is that they had been accumulating data to patch up this problem for hundreds of years. And so they had effectively a, a pretty accurate view of the movements of, you know, celestial objects 
And so when Copernicus actually proposed his theory, it went against all of this, you know, massive accumulation of data. It was actually an, a human mind insight that really broke from this kind of bell curve inductive thinking. You know, in the book, I think I say it, it, you know, like all the data was fit to the wrong curve. How could AI have helped? It would have actually just further entrenched that conclusion and tried to optimize the geocentric model. It took a person actually to, to innovate or in this, in this case to, to discover. And it was in spite of, not because of all the data. And so you see, like you do see in the history of innovation and the history of scientific discovery, you see these moments where people have a shift in thinking that really can't be accounted for by any kind of mechanistic analysis of what, you know, what was going on before that that's one of, one of the lessons is, is that if we don't, as it was Norbert Wiener who said, you know, if we don't invest in human intelligence in our society, we're unlikely to have a lot of it, right? So, you know, one lesson of innovation is like to take Wiener's, you know, point seriously and to take the lessons of the scientific, the major scientific discoveries in the Western world seriously, you know, we need to invest in people. So I think in a large part, AI actually, it certainly does in science and we can talk about, I can talk about specific cases in science where I think AI is directly threatening scientific innovation to the extent that people are, focusing on on the systems rather than the ideas behind the systems. Well, the more tech we have around us, the more we we start to kind of get the feeling that uh, tech is the answer to everything. We get that reinforced by big tech and, and their, their big uh, yearly or even semi-yearly announcements of new products and, and uh, you know, updates. And, you know, if we're not careful, we just we just think tech is the answer to everything. But you, you have said that there are some things in society, some problems that we have that are just fundamentally non-technical. Can you uh, embellish on that a little bit? Why isn't everything um, solvable with tech, do you think? Is that just because of the fundamental difference between machine and mind? I mean, I could give the case of neuroscience, neuroscience research, say. So there was something like a billion euros invested in trying to understand how the brain works and really the in in the case of the european project it was called the human brain project i think the hpp uh, it the the in that case it was yeah, it was expressly like the, the goal of that project was to reproduce the human brain to on a computer on a supercomputer basically and the idea there was that if we can just get to a sufficient level of granularity in neurons and systems of neurons and so on that we can, we can actually code those connections in an artificial neural network. We can just build an actual human brain. This was an actual project that sounds like science fiction, but it was actually the European union put huge amounts of money in this. Of course it was a total failure. And there were these IBM blue gene supercomputers that sat in the middle of the project. And the, uh, it's a different way of answering your question, but, Tech didn't solve that problem in science. That program was really a fantastic failure. The guy who started it actually ended up getting fired for a variety of reasons. But tech didn't solve that problem in science because focusing on technology rather than the actual natural world 
it turns out to have not been a good idea. It's almost like inserting an artifact. It was like inserting an artificial layer. And so trying to convert basic research in neuroscience into a software development project just means you're going to end up with software ideas and ideas that are programmable on a computer. And your scientists are going to be working with existing theories because those are the ones you can actually write and code, right? And they're not going to be looking for gaps in our existing theoretical knowledge in the brain. So I think in that case, and I, this is a case that I, I develop in the book, in that case, it was really clear that the introduction of technology as the kind of driving force for success in that project was a catastrophic, was a really terrible, terrible idea. And it was very obvious, at least, I mean, it's certainly obvious in retrospect, but it was obvious to me at the time. I remember thinking that's never going to work. Right. And but so there's just, you know, 10 billion euros or something wasted. The United States had a similar project under former President Obama, which has been a little bit more congenial to actual human research. And so it's been it's met with a little bit more success. But just the but the point is, is that the idea that you can replace supercomputers with human thinking and, and human science and human insight and, you know, the hard work of scientific investigation and discovery is just a really bad idea. I mean, I'm tempted to say it's kind of a stupid idea, frankly, like, why would anybody believe that that's going to work? Um, you know, computation in general is and engineering in general is a downstream kind of idea. It's not a direct connection to nature and to the world around us. And so when you're when you're trying to take these downstream ideas and make them central to investigation like you're just you're you're never going to get to the ground truth you're never going to grab the root of the problem and that certainly happened so all these tech connections are not direct connections including the one we're having right now right it's not a it's not a direct connection i can't reach out and shake your hand and say hi and so on and so you know but a, a certain amount of that just greases the wheels the modern wheels right a certain amount of that is is kind of you know how we keep however many billion people on the planet connected, and a lot of that had you know is necessary to drive business and other aspects of the modern world. But there always is going to be this tension. Yeah. So this is a little get, getting a little bit away from stuff that I talk about in the book, but I I'm more than happy to talk about it. It's I mean it's interesting in its own right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. Bring us back to the the topic of your book. Well, in part three of your book, you, you finish by kind of warning us of the consequences of carrying the myth of AI into the future. What will happen if we don't get on the right path with AI? And what will happen if we do, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, that second one is an interesting question. So, yeah, I mean, I so I, I ended the book with um, a, a question from the, the investor, uh, Peter Thiel, he had asked this question and I, I just stumbled upon it watching a YouTube interview that he was giving a couple of years ago. And he was asking, "Have is innovation dried up? In other words, did we pick all the low hanging fruit? And that's why we don't see, we see a stagnation in innovation today. And by the way, I agree with his assessment of the world circuit 2021. You don't see a lot of, you don't see a lot of innovation in AI as a field and just in general, right? Like the AI itself has been in the same mode 
I would argue for 20 years, but deep learning was roughly 2012. So we were just about a decade into the same way of thinking in AI. And, you know, there's just nothing new coming out of AI science anymore. Mm. Um, you know, and so like innovations dried up within AI and it's also, it's sort of, I feel, I feel anyway that it's kind of dried up as, as Teal was saying, that's kind of dried up sort of generally, we don't see a lot of new fantastically interesting things coming out of culture. We just see Twitter fights and we just, yeah. it's the same stuff. There's nothing new happening. And so it, did we pick all the low hanging fruit from the, you know, from the scientific discoveries of the last century on up through the tech, the, the advent of the web, or do we have some kind of perversion of culture itself so that we can't find new ideas? And so I, I kind of, I pose this question, which one is it? Are we out of ideas or are we not well positioned to find them? And I, you know, I tend to, I, I hope that we're not out of ideas and I actually still earnestly, like I actually am working in the field of AI. I actually work for an AI company. My, my title is research scientist in, in, and I actually want to continue to find innovative ways of doing AI. For instance, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, there's a practical aspect here. Wouldn't it be nice if our systems that recommended movies actually could capture more of our preferences, right? I mean, I don't think that's going to particularly hurt human society if we just had better functioning tech. Since we're not getting rid of it, we might as well try to make it work better. Yeah. And so like if we had something more than big data, like re these recommendation systems that use collaborative filters and tons and tons of data, if we had something more on offer, we might actually have a better tech experience. And we have these independent questions as to whether how much we want to have that be part of our lives. But we, I'd certainly like to see the, the AI improve. And um, I don't think we're out of ideas. I would like to see, though, I would like to believe that we didn't pick all the low hanging fruit and we have a kind of we have a kind of stagnating culture today. We have a kind of stagnating situation and we need new ideas. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that big data AI has become the enemy effectively. Right. Like, mm. you know, now everybody in the field of AI, every every you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Everybody wants to throw data at problems. And we've reached the limit. I mean, if you if you look at self-driving cars, there's no more data that we're going to use for those, you know, for the systems that you have these visual object recognition systems and autonomous autonomous navigation systems, right? And they like there's just no more stuff that we're that we're going to include. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. almost too too much data for our own good, uh, or we need to regroup to figure out what to do with it and and what might be important to collect versus what may not be in google's view no yeah. data point is useless that's what i think their uh, their thinking is you know uh, no matter what we harvest we can use it somehow whether it's in advertising or or building new services and that might be true but you can't reduce humans to a bunch of data points either you know, that that just uh, undermines creativity and originality and also spontaneity, you know. So I think we'll be wrestling with this for a while. And back to your point about movies, you know, like sometimes you'll hear folks say, oh, I stumbled on this uh, new TV show and I just love it. You know, like are we getting to the point where we can't we're not really stumbling on things anymore because it's being brought to us by algorithms we don't really see and don't really sense, you know, it. 
Like yeah. I want to still be able to say I, that I accidentally yeah. found you, or I, or or or, or it, I just so happened to be in the area. Well, it's just that that constant uh, struggle to uh, to keep humanity going without technology taking over. Almost. That's a really good point. I would say, especially with the with the question of big tech. So there's something nefarious going on beyond just the the philosophical idea of treating people like data points, which certainly is the underlying worldview, right? Like that's, that's what's happening. That's the view of the person is a bunch of trackable data points in a kind of Cartesian coordinate system, right? Like that's, that's the idea, but it's, it's one of the big threats to that kind of life experience is the tech companies are actually not just trying to predict, but it's more effective to predict what you're going to do next if they can control to some degree what you're going to do next, right? Like I think the big tech companies, there's a fantastic book out by Shoshana Zuboff called uh, Surveillance Capitalism, where she explains that it's not just that they're collecting data, they're actively trying to manipulate your choices and manipulating choices involves reducing them, right? So if you're doing unexpected things, they're making less ad revenue. And this is, it sounds like right out of some kind of sci-fi world scenario or that can't possibly be happening. It's a perverse business model. And the connection back to AI, incidentally, is that, you know, if you take away the big data AI, you don't have, you don't have the number crunching capacity to try, you know, to, to track and manipulate 2 billion people on the internet, right? Like you just, you need the, the AI to be able to crunch the numbers. So it is, there is the connection there, but yeah, I'm very concerned about that. I've actually thought about writing specifically on that topic. It's not just that they have this reductive view of the human person. It's also that a consequence of that reductive view is that we ought to be able to be manipulated. So there's an underlying behavioristic assumption as well. There's the idea that people are just material things. I mean, if you're a data point, you're not having much of a robust spiritual life. But on top of just the reduction of the, the, the ontological question of what a person is, there's a question of like sort of how can you control and predict human behavior to create a good society? And the, the behaviorism is this idea that it's just inputs and outputs or it's um stimulus and response right so that yeah all there is to a person or you know all there is to a person's behavior is a set of stimuli that produces a set of you know trackable responses that's effectively it's not as if this view has been consciously you know drawn up in the in the labs of you know in the in the halls of google or something i don't think Although who knows, right? But but the point is, is that they're implicitly assuming this kind of reductionistic model and they have a huge financial incentive to manipulate, right? Not just to, not just to predict, but to predict by reducing choices. It's one reason I don't use Google anymore to search. You know, number one, I don't want to line their pockets with my data points of what I'm searching for. And number yeah. two, I don't want to be influenced in what I find by them, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so it's like, where do I turn? Well, golly, I mean, I can get onto DuckDuckGo, which, which aids with privacy. You know, I, I, the answer I think is quit searching online and go to a library 
and find books on the subject and talk to people on the subject, look up podcasts, you know, listen to what people are saying about the issue. Don't just quickly search and oh, boom, you found your answer, you know. There's a there's a guy that he's a he's a technologist and he writes uh, on these topics that he's fairly well known. Jaron Lanier, you probably heard heard of him. Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean, one of his he's he's got a book out that it's repays reading. It's a quick read. It's called like Ten Reasons to Delete All Your Social That's Media right. Accounts. Yeah. yeah, he's got some other stuff out. One of his one of the one of his the first book I think he wrote is one of his best. It's called You Are Not a Gadget, and it's more of a a deeper dive philosophically, but, but in this 10 reasons to drop your social media account, he says like, never, I mean, there's some, there's some principle in there, some statement that never let passively algorithms determine what you're doing next. In other words, like actively search for the movie and do the research, like you said, right. So it's just, it's just, it's, it's just a way of, stopping this like seemingly inevitable slide into just being these passive sort of data points for yeah. profit making companies. And yeah. Companies. And that that's yeah. honestly something I want to help people do is just, Hey, you know, here's what's happening. Uh, and here's what we can do about it. You know, uh, don't be passive with your tech and with big tech and with these algorithms, be active, you know, don't yeah. be afraid to step outside the model, uh, make mistakes uh, be accidental. Yeah, that, that that whole free thinking and thinking outside the box. We need a lot of that. Yeah, I was chuckling the other day. I saw Facebook experimenting uh, with a select group uh, where they'll they'll facilitate prayer requests. Have you heard of this? No. Yeah, Facebook will no, actually come up and you know, if, obviously, if they if they've gathered the data that you might be a, a faith uh, a faith believer, you know or religious in some sort, they'll say, hey, do you have prayer requests? You know, we'll help you share them, you know, which is sort of funny because obviously they only care about us connecting so that we they can make money with advertising. But what's what's ironic is, you know, that is how prayer, prayer works. You know, not only are we bringing uh, the prayer to uh, the creator, we're also sharing with the community and they can lift up that in prayer as well. And so it's just kind of a funny example of of how AI is being used in the religious sense. Yeah, I mean, it's so I I mean, I would even go so far like artificial intelligence that especially the way it's used today is really just a convenient marketing term that makes it sound like very progressive and we're creating these intelligent entities. And so we're on the forefront of science and so on. And it gives it this really interesting, exciting, futuristic sheen, but it's really functioning as just big data crunching computers everywhere in your life. I mean, that's the the actual, there is no intelligence in in inductive AI. Like that's not what's going on. It's really number crunching. Yeah. Um, And so we could get into examples of that, but it's just, it's, it, it does get a little creepy there's a system GPT three, I think, come came out from OpenAI, which is this this company that produces a lot of open source stuff, AI stuff, and and but GPT three is a language model, right? So it was just trained on just millions and millions of example texts and so on. It's just this really complicated language model that uses uh, deep learning. Is I think the 
pretty much everything. They're using it to generate text, which means to write. They're using it to actually create you know, readable and understandable, comprehensible prose. Mm-hmm. And so there's this big push, like how, how coherent and interesting and meaningful is the prose that this mindless language model that was just trained on billions of documents, right? Like with, I don't know how many, I can't remember 75 million parameters or something like, I don't remember now the the specs. I probably got that wrong actually, but it's, 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 it doesn't matter. But it's sort of like, there's something creepy about that where in that discussion, nobody is saying like, so we're just using giant supercomputers and number crunching to mimic writing that, you know, the exercise of writing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, people are saying that if it gets good enough, we're going to, there's all these problems that happen if it gets just good enough. So if it, it it's never going to write a novel and it doesn't understand what it's doing at all, right? Like that's just not what's going on, but it might be able to create all kinds of divisive tweets, right? And there's no person behind it. It's just, it's just good enough to yeah. generate you know, text that makes, you know, starts a war or destabilizes a market or something. So there are these, I'm really worried that the the tech is just kind of reaching this just good enough phase where it could just be put to all kinds of nefarious uses, but there's no understanding going on behind it. And so, you know, yeah, there's kind of two intertwined thoughts there. One is, is so what if a language model running on a supercomputer can spit out a t- sequence of tokens of words that you know every now and then we say it got a whole paragraph and didn't you know and didn't produce gibberish. It's sort of like so what? It doesn't know. It's not writing, right? Like there's this there's this weird question. Like didn't it, isn't it bother anybody that that's what you know? Like all this research dollars and intellectual effort is going into creating an illusion, <laughs> right? Yeah. Using you know computation. But there's this other really, I think there's the other strand of that comment is, is that that stuff can be just good enough to really screw up the human world that we're living in, hmm. really destabilize stuff, right? Yeah. Well, in all of this, I, I, I'm the, the thing I think about is the value of just turning it off, you know, just pressing that power button and walking away and living your life, whether you're the AI researcher or the Joe Blow who just got a new iPhone or the the person uh, Netflixing and chilling, you know, just turn the bloody thing off and do your thing as a human. You know, that's one of the things I would say to all this is just, and that's that's why uh, I, my uh, it's not a formal organization, but my uh, my writing on tech is called Authentic Technology, loosely, and and my little logo for it, at least on on socials and stuff, is the universal symbol for the power button, you know? Um, And I'm, I'm basically just uh, reminding people of the power of just turning it off and living, you know, sure. We can innovate. Sure. We can create. I mean, I believe God gave us the ability to work with our hands and our minds to do awesome things with technology. That's one of the things I've been communicating lately with the word technology. It basically means the art and skill that we have, you know, but Sometimes we just got to turn off the the devices and just get back to what's important. Family, uh, connection with others, doing good, 
making the world a better place before you leave it, you know? Well, yeah, I, I mean, obviously I agree. I mean, the, the AI question is, is tricky because as, you know, professionally I want to, to make it better. But yeah. you also have to keep in mind, though, that if we get away from the data, the really data-driven AI, um, if we get away from that, we may be able to make movie recommendations without manipulation, right? Like, if I don't have to collect all the data about you to actually provide you some valuable service online, then we have a advance in AI, and we also move away from this creepy kind of manipulative data collection model. So... The data-driven AI, we have all kinds of reasons as scientists or just like lay people, just, you know, the public to get away from it, right? We have practical reasons and we're at the limit in terms of just the power of it in, in, within AI science itself. I think we sort of reached, we saturated, we reached the limits of its, uh, you know, ability to perform on all these different tasks we want and so on. And yeah, I mean, so we like we see with self-driving cars in 2016, we thought they were right around the corner. If you go back and read the stuff written about tech, you know, self-driving cars, and I saw that Elon Musk just the other day came out and said, you know, basically backpedaled and said, well, yeah, it turns out that these problems were harder. He's just discovering that there are problems in, you know, in this case in navigation, but they're really cognition problems or thinking problems, right? there are problems that just aren't captured with AI. You know, we, we, we do, we have, I'm not a fan of self-driving cars, by the way, I follow your point about just turn it off. Like I'd rather just, ha I'd rather just drive the car or somebody else drive the car. I just, I just, I, that techno, I grew up around cars. My dad used to race cars. It's just like, I just have a cultural, yeah. you know, like I just, no, I just not a fan of that, <laughs> but we're not going to see them anytime soon. Right. Because the tech just isn't as smart as people think it is. And it has limits that I try to, you know, describe in the, I try to really explain this clearly in the book. It has limits that we don't know how to overcome. But I, but like I said, I don't, I do see merit in improving AI, especially away from this data-driven model, right? I don't see a world where we're not stuck with what we call artificial intelligence. For one, mm -hmm. China invests billions and trillions of dollars in it and we're whether we like it or, or not we're in a kind of de facto cold war with china we don't really want to lose that war so we kind of have to keep developing advanced computational technologies which yeah you know we call ai but you know like we, we just we're sort of stuck in the modern world developing systems that are capable of doing autonomous things yeah, you know, or the drone program and everything else. So there's kind of no way out of that that I can see. Insofar as we have enemies, but and that's okay. I mean, we don't all have to move to Montana and live in a cabin off grid in order yeah. to appreciate life, you know. Yeah. Um, but we we do have to draw the right boundaries and have the right ethics around those things that we're creating. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to your project. I hope that's really successful for you. Yeah, well, it just, you know, it seems like uh, a human exceptionalism kind of idea, you know, let's, let's be respectful of human beings and who they are and, and how they've been designed. And let's, by all means, create things with our hands and minds, but, but let's be careful about it, you know. So, yeah, this has been a, a great conversation, Eric. I appreciate you taking uh, more time than I thought I'd take from you today uh, about this, but... 
this is this is all good stuff. You know, I I started tuning into AI and it's uh, and this futuristic talk when I when I saw that that robot dog and it would get to a it would get to an obstacle and it jumped over that obstacle or it turned around and went around it. And watching that video, I think it was from MIT or some other lab, yeah. it, it kind of woke me up to, huh, maybe it's becoming smarter. But w- what's behind that? Just just out of curiosity, what is behind that dog robot being able to uh, jump over something? Is that is that just knowing what's ahead of it and knowing what to do about it? Or is there, you know, something else going on? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't work in robotics per se, but it has part of the big challenge with robotics is just the system has to actually know what's in front of it. It's actually a hard problem. It's called visual object recognition for the obvious reason. It's like recognizing objects, but Part of the problem with with robots is just that unless they're in very constrained environments, like say a manufacturing arm that just has to see a box and you know move it to you know some other position, um, it's just very difficult for them to actually tell uh, what's in front of them. I mean, it just it seems it seems so so trivial to us having actual you know, biological eyesight, but it's very difficult for automated systems to do that. Gary Marcus is an AI researcher, and he remarked once um, that if you want to show how stupid AI is, or if you're if you're worried about killer robots, that is, then all you have to do is close and lock your door because <laughs> they have they have a notoriously difficult time actually just locating the doorknob and correctly manipulating it to open the door. They may stand there for hours just trying to figure out how to open a door. Yeah, so I heard it, about that. Might not have to worry about the Terminators yet, but. Yeah, I mean, what's behind that is just advances in visual object recognition. And there's no magic to that. They're just using, you know, they're just training on, you know, larger and larger data sets where they detect edges and, and surfaces and so on in a, in a, in a plane or in a visual space. And then in terms of the mechanics, I don't know, because I, I work in language processing. Yeah, so I don't know, I don't know how the, the actual mechanics of the legs and stuff and so on and all that stuff is working, but, but yeah, the, they've been doing the, the robotic stuff is, is proceeding at a snail's pace. It's not clear. It's it's they're going to hit these limits that I talk about with these inductive systems, right? Like at some point they're going to need something that's more insightful going on. Yeah. You know, or they're just creating kind of some, you know, canned behavior. And by the way, this example you mentioned, they probably did that in the background 50 times before yeah. they actually filmed it or 150 yeah. times. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind that, right. You're seeing if it's, if you see it at all, it's marketing, right? Like it's, it's not. It, yeah. I'm that's sure true. It, Good point. Yeah. All right, Eric. Well, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. The book is the myth of artificial intelligence and uh, it's out now. And I know I'm going to read it over my vacation in full, but uh, I do um, recommend the book to those who are listening Uh, It's a great topic and you have some great insight into it. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. This has been Mind Matters News. 
Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.